0: welcome back to our study in the gospel of mark this non-stop action-packed account of the life of jesus god's only son we've been learning that his call for us to follow him was a call to take up the cross and actually live it. It can feel upside down to the world around us. But Jesus was ushering in a new way of living. In recent weeks, we have stopped and we've seen how he viewed marriage and things like money. We observed a few weeks ago that he approached political issues probably differently than many of us would have and last week we saw where those tricky religious leaders just pursued him trying to trap him trying to find him in an error well this week we leave those more public arenas and we get to peek in on a personal conversation that Jesus has with four of his friends. And he uses a method of teaching with them that I'll call pre-teaching. He teaches them ahead of time what they will need to know sometime out into the future. As parents, Nick and I have adopted this method as our main strategy with our kids. We pre-teach the first day of school. We pre-teach birthday parties. We pre-teach vacations. We try to talk about what most likely will happen, and then we go and do it. We pre-teach going to restaurants, and often when we're coming out, we're praising our kids, we're patting ourselves on the back. We've done such a great job. Until that one day, Nick and I took our boys into Red Robin right in the middle of the lunch rush. They were probably three and a half years old and instead of getting that classic garlinger table way back hidden near the kitchen we were seated out in the midst of everybody at one of those little square tables where you can just reach out and touch the people seated next to you well it was all going well at first the waitress commented on how cute daniel and joshua were she brought me diet coke really quickly But it all changed when that kindly elderly gentleman with the oxygen tank was seated right next to us. He began to tease and talk with my son and we were exchanging pleasantries between our tables. But then without warning, my baby boy reached over and turned off the oxygen tank. It's a sound that haunts me to this day. The daughter who was with him jumped up, wheeled the tank around. Nobody died, and everything, everything ended up well. But Nick and I learned an important lesson. Pre-teaching doesn't cover everything. And we'll see when Jesus pre-teaches his friends about the coming dangers and difficulties, he doesn't cover everything but what he does in Mark 13 is give a steady and consistent call to get ready Mark chapter 13 page 1599 in the pew Bible there in the rack in front of you it begins like this in verse 1 as Jesus was leaving the temple that day one of his disciples said teacher look at these magnificent buildings Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings. But they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Jesus warns his friends that their temple will be destroyed. To the Jews, there was nothing as magnificent as the temple. It was an architectural wonder. Some of the stones would have been 25 feet long, 8 feet wide, and maybe as tall as 12 feet. That's just one stone. And Jesus says they're all going to be toppled, that the temple will be destroyed. This is the place of God's presence to these people. The location, the center point of religious and ethnic life for them. And Jesus says that every bit of life as they've known it, every bit of that religious support system is about to be yanked out from under them. There's no immediate response from the disciples. At least Mark doesn't record one for us. But let's keep looking. We'll pick up in verse 3. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? They came privately with a follow-up question. It's like there's this elephant on the Mount of Olives and they dare to point it out. Jesus, what you said over there about the temple, when's it going to happen? How will we know? And Jesus gives a pretty long and involved response to them. But before we get into it, we need to understand the tone that he had when he spoke to them. He's not refuting tricky religious leaders. He's not preaching in the synagogue. No, he's talking with friends. So this is mutual admiration and respect, friendship loyalty speaking. This is, I care about my friends, speaking. It's the Son of God pre-teaching. Not about first days of school, not about going to a birthday party, not about eating in a restaurant. No, his theme is that difficulties lie ahead. And his instruction is that they must get ready. And if they pay attention, they'll catch on that faith and endurance are the things Jesus is wanting to draw out of them. Verse 5, Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Jesus wants them to know. He gives them this warning about deception, about turmoil. Many will come claiming to be me, he tells them. Don't fall for it. He doesn't want his friends to be deceived. And he says, you will always face some sort of turmoil. He talks about wars and earthquakes and famines. But he says, don't panic. This is just the first of the birth pains. Now that phrase, birth pains, these guys, these friends of Jesus, would likely have clued in to what he was talking about when he used that phrase. It was a phrase consistently used by prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, they all used that phrase. They, they would use it when they were describing that gripping, breath-stopping pain of childbirth. That's the pain that comes on a people when God's wrath is upon them. History is headed toward God's pre-planned goal of birthing his kingdom in all of its glory. But like with any birth, it's going to get a lot more difficult before the final delivery. And we continue in verse 9. When these things begin to happen, Jesus tells them, watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you're my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you're arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you're my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus gives another warning. He tells them that suffering and personal danger is surely coming their way. He tells them these ominous stories about the future, and they're beginning to catch on. They didn't sign up for any part-time gig. The truth is they'll suffer because they've aligned themselves with Jesus. They'll be arrested, beaten, put on trial, and if we flipped over to the book of Acts, we'd see that's exactly what happened. But just as Jesus promises in Mark, the Holy Spirit does show up for the good of every believer. They'll face agony in what should have been some of the closest relationships. Sibling against sibling, parent against child, child against parents. Jesus doesn't speak in terms of if these things will happen. He says when they happen. And in the midst of it, he calls them to a level of urgency that they would not lose sight of the things he's called them to do. Preach the good news to all nations, he tells them, even though people will hate you for it. And then he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Somehow, this suffering is what will separate true believers in Jesus from his fair-weather fans. Enduring to the end won't be what saves the person, but faith in the God of salvation will motivate and fuel the endurance. We, I think we all look at endurance and we find it to be a glorious thing. When a marathon runner crosses the finish line, we cheer. When an injured soldier goes through rehab and relearns how to walk, we marvel. When a man takes loving, good care of his dying wife, we we applaud. When a child with a disability accomplishes something new, we celebrate. When a single person remains pure while longing for marriage, we respect them. We see the person in the hard spot, and we revere that enduring spirit. But have we become better at clapping for other people's endurance than enduring ourselves? Somehow Jesus knew that when a person's allegiance to him is tested, they'd struggle to endure. Get ready to endure with me, Jesus says, even when religious props are pulled out from under you, even when there's turmoil all around you, even when your allegiance to me leads to suffering. Some of what Jesus will say to them next has to do with the end of their world. The temple will be destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, AD. Some of what he says next has to do with the end of the world, all of the world, human history ending and his kingdom being established finally in all of its true and right and perfect ways. This is where we need to step back and be sure that we're prepared to quickly take in what he talks with his friends about. So I'm going to try to pre-teach the rest of the chapter before we get there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew were just having a conversation with Jesus. It's the first they've heard of these things. It's a day in the life for them. But you and I, we sit here 2,000 years later and we're in this catbird seat where we have more information than the characters in the story had. We're able to look at things and cheer for them. We're able to say, hang on guys, you can trust Jesus. We know how it ends. As a better way to understand this, I'm going to ask you, put your creative thinking caps on and we're going to think about the things Jesus talks to them about as mountains And so the first picture I want us to see, you're driving down I-5, it's a dreary, typical day here in the valley, and you look over to the place where you know the Cascade Range is, and if you squint and turn your head a certain way, you kind of see this shape of a blob. That might be what the disciples see as Jesus talks with them. But you and I have a different vantage point. We know so much more than they did. We see more detail. And as we listen in and apply even more what we know, we begin to see the individual mountains. Or in the case of Jesus talking, we'll begin to see individual things he's pointing to even though he's saying it all at once. We begin to see individual peaks and valleys. Imagine that we can somehow all fit into my minivan. We buckle in and we drive toward this mountain range. At first, it's off in the distance and we don't really get a good picture. But if we keep driving and we go into the mountain range, We have an entirely different experience. It's like the miles that separate the mountain peaks from one another. Some of what Jesus is talking about actually happened in the past. Some of it will happen in the near future. And some of it will happen off in the far distant. Pick up with me in verse 14 and I hope that will help a little bit. Jesus says to them, the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. And the author inserts, reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Any of you chat about that at breakfast this morning before you came? We don't talk like that at my house. And so I've struggled. How do we get into the context? Is it when one rival school sneaks over to the other school in the middle of the night and sets up a statue to their mascot? Is it if we had all come in here to church this morning and graffiti had been sprayed all over No, no, none of those things touch what Jesus is talking about. This is a desecration of the very place where God's presence resided. This is the godless one claiming to be the one true God and leading many, many astray. It's an act so detestable to all that is holy. And Jesus warns when it happens, just flee. If you're out on the deck, don't run back in the house to pack. If you're in a field, don't go looking for your jacket. Jesus says that at this time there will be greater anguish than at any other time in human history. But he assures his friends that God has already set a limit to the anguish because he loves his people so very much. Daniel, a prophet in the Old Testament, spoke of this desecration and um, he used this language that Jesus uses. And there was a near fulfillment when an enemy army came and sacked Jerusalem several hundred years before Jesus was born but what Daniel said also pointed way off into the future. And Jesus uses Daniel's language to describe trouble that will come in 40 years when the temple is destroyed, but also to point to that same time off in the distance. Look at the mountain peaks now and Think with me here for a minute we see Jesus talking with his friends and by saying one thing he points back in time that would have triggered their minds to remember oh it was that ghastly time in our history but that same language he uses is pointing forward even all the way to the end of the world. This is the time that the book of Revelation refers to as the great tribulation. This is the time when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. This is end time stuff. But Jesus doesn't go into all that much detail and you and I have much more information than Peter, James, John, and Andrew do. Jesus just tells them A terrible time is coming, and you need to get ready for it. Pick up in verse 21. Jesus says, If anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out, I have warned you about this ahead of time. There's that reminder to them, again, about deceivers. Don't fall, pray to them, he says. And then verse 26, Jesus says, Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth, and heaven. He wants them to know that his return won't be hidden. They won't have to chase down multiple roads to find him. No, he says everyone will see when Jesus comes back. But until then, nobody knows. Verse 32. No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the sun himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, exclamation point. Stay alert, exclamation point. Even while Jesus was on earth, he didn't know God's timing. But he wants to urge that people know the lack of detail shouldn't lead to complacence, just the opposite. It should lead to this heightened level of readiness. Get ready to live for Jesus, even in the face of difficulty and suffering. That's a pretty hard one to sell. But Jesus isn't selling anything. He's giving an invitation. Suffering can be your opportunity that your faith is tested and proven true and strengthened. Suffering can be your opportunity to endure and to learn how to live with Jesus in a new way. When Jesus spoke to Peter, James, John, and Andrew... He longed to have their allegiance. He wanted them ready even when the temple would be destroyed, when all religious support systems were taken away from them. He wanted them ready to hold back deceptive teaching. He wanted them ready to be able to live in turmoil and still go about the things he had called them to do. What will getting ready in these ways look like for us? In the next couple of minutes, we're going to talk through three questions that will appear on the screen. And as we process, if you sense the Spirit of God speaking to you, tune me out and listen to him. That might be the spot where he wants you to stop today. And he'll begin to work some new growth or process in you. So the first question... Are you ready for a day when all religious support might be knocked out from under you? What if this building burned down? What if your small group disbanded? What if you moved to a city and in that city everyone whose last name starts with the letter that yours does is not allowed in any church? Are you ready for that day? Is your relationship with Jesus such that just you and him will be enough? You'd be sustained during that time. And if not, what would it be for you to get ready? Next question. Are you ready to fend off deceivers? Do you know when you're confronted by false teaching? Do you know God's word in such a way that if a friend approaches you with a certain train of thought, or if you read it or see it in the media, or if a cult approaches you, do you know truth as a way to fend off deception? If you're not ready to do that, what might it look like for you? Would you commit to reading the Bible? Would you commit to joining a group? Would you commit to sitting down with a friend and choosing a book that would properly and rightly inform your thinking on some of these very, very important issues? Next question. Are you ready to face difficult days because of your allegiance to Christ? Back in January, this cloth, you'll remember, was spread out across here. And as Steve issued that call to commitment, many, many of us signed that, yes, we will commit to live it. But now two months have gone by. And I'm supposing that for some of us, life has gotten more challenging. So you signed the cloth in January but your family members don't share your allegiance to Jesus, and so they've abandoned you. How will you be ready for that? Never mind turmoil like wars and earthquakes. Turmoil in your own heart and mind is about to make you crazy, but you signed that you would live it. What will you need to do to get ready that. Maybe you signed the cloth and because of that you refused a shady business deal and now you're watching your competitor get rich and your home just went into short sale. How do we ready ourselves for days like these? Jesus came to earth the first time and in order to be one of us He had to suffer, and now it is clear for you and me to become more like him, we will likely need to suffer too. When we think of that word suffering, it's easy to jump to things like being thrown to the lions or burned at the stake, and those things are real, and we have brothers and sisters around the world that face things like that. But what if the call to readiness from Jesus to us is some of these more ordinary sorts of suffering? What if these are the kinds of things that we need to get ready for? When they come, are we going to run from them and find that that takes us further from Jesus? Or when they come, will we allow them to drive us to him? He's been gracious to tell us up front that these days will come. How will we respond? When I was dating my husband, maybe we had been dating two or three months, and he approached me one night out of the blue and said, I would like, for us to date each other exclusively. And I said, well, that's pretty shocking. Did it just hit you right now? And I said, tell me more. Tell me what you're thinking. And he kind of explained what he meant by that. And I said, okay, you go away and let me think about it. And a few days later, I called him up, and I said, I think I'm ready to accept your offer. And so I did. Well, some more time went on, and... Nick approached again and suggested that he thought he'd like to kiss me. And I was pretty surprised by that. It had come to me out of nowhere. And so I sent him away, and I think it was the middle of the next week before we actually kissed. (laughs) This quirky, flaky relational pattern was developing between Nick and me, and I think, quite honestly, Nick just wanted to put the end to it. So one night he looked right at me and he said, one of these days I'm going to ask you to marry me and I would appreciate so much if you would get ready for it. (laughs) That's what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 13. He's looking for a better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health commitment from us. He longs for that. He's coming back. Eternal glory will be ours with him. But that's not the message of Mark chapter 13. No, the message of Mark chapter 13 is from right now until that day of glory, are you and I willing to get ready for whatever he has? Lord Jesus, we cry out to you. I confess my own awareness of my quirky, flaky relating with you. Perhaps others too. We desperately need your help. We hear the invitation you've issued and we want to respond that yes, no matter what, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.